Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Hello everyone, you're listening to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast. My name is Romain Schiffer and I'm joined by a wonderful friend and co-host Luba Timonina. Hello Luba. Hi everyone, I'm very happy to be back. In today's episode, we're joined by Proud Scott and Dermarty colleague Eric Boyd. Hi Eric, uh, thanks for accepting the invitation and welcome to the podcast. Hi, yeah, <laughs> thanks very much. But first things first, uh, how would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? I mean, I'm doing a PhD in social anthropology and I guess political geography, particularly or geographies of infrastructure um, with Durham Arctic. Uh, I'm in my third year, I'm finishing up um, and my field site is in uh, Kiruna in the Arctic. But I, I think for me more personally, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I wonder what anthropologist means or is. So I consider myself much more dealing with kind of just sort of applied social theory in a way. Thanks. So we, you, talk, you talked about Kirina and you talked about the Arctic. A question we generally ask our, our guests is where does this interest in Arctic uh, or in the Arctic or in Arctic study come from for you? Yeah, sure. My background is very bioscience heavy. I did uh, sort of um, my uh, I was very focused on ecological niche-based dynamics, and this is in 2009 and stuff. So, um, but there was this, you know, ever-growing interest in the Arctic as this like forefront of climate change, right? That was the very visual forefront. You're fed in the bios. I was fed in the biosciences at the University of Dundee, um, and so that's it's from there. It was always sort of an imaginary, right? It was always just sort of bubbling away and presented in that pristine Arctic Eden, you know, a void to be filled. Sort of way, and then um, I read this in between my bachelor's and my master's, and my master's in, in anthropology. So I did a complete shift of gear. Um, uh, I read an article which was about this uh, re-emerging black market industry in mammoth tusks happening um, along the northern coast of, of, of uh, Russia. I, it was incredible. This like second gold rush for these fossilized things. And I was like, that is, that's something I'm really interested in. So that kind of reignited um, my interest in the Arctic. And so I was trying during my master's to work out how I could do thesis uh, where the field site was the Arctic, right? I was at University College London um, and I ended up traveling up to Aberdeen to meet folks in their anthropology department because they're very Arctic oriented. And they were putting me onto the idea of like pipelines and what you could do with all that stuff, but it was all in Canada. And so like, it was insanely expensive. It was just, and I was working throughout my master's. You know, I, I did it part time, and I worked, you know, put myself through it. So I, um, I, I went to Sweden for the first time, and um, and I realized that I could fly from London to Stockholm for like ten pounds, and then I could get a train from Stockholm to Kiruna for like fifty pounds. <laughs> and like I'd heard of Kiruna through just completely by chance. A colleague of mine at UCL, um, uh, uh Kat, um. She, uh, one afternoon, said, hey, there's a thing on at LSE. Um, they're moving a city in the Arctic, and there's an anthropologist talking about it. Do you want to go? I was like, yeah. And so we went, and it was the anthropologist who's 
hired by White Architecture, still works in White, White Architecture, the people redesigning Kiruna, presenting on this deeply positivist view of how to move a city and have everyone included. Um, which they're still, which they're still rolling out, but we'll get to how maybe diluted that is soon. But like, um, uh, so there, and I was like, oh, Kiruna, okay, cool. And then I realized you could just go to Sweden for like under a hundred pounds. And so it was kind of serendipitous. It was that sort of that function of being miserably poor in London and living in a boiler cupboard for seven hundred pounds a month, sort of forcing you to move to the Arctic. <laughs> you know, the traditional story, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Very, very, very common. Um, we hear that all the, all the time. Uh, but um, so in in past episodes, we've we've talked about Arctic infrastructures and ruins with Mia Bennett, also Arctic imaginary with people like uh, Isabel Gap, Christian Jury, uh, our Durham colleague, and Greg Sharp. And we really wanted to have you on to continue this broader discussion on these topics. And you mentioned that you um, research on Karina, and uh, so. Could you could you just give like the elevator summary, but maybe a bit more than the than the elevator summary of what's happening in Kirina and what are the what are the stakes there? What's what's happening with the city? Yeah, no, of course. So um, so Kirina is a mining town, a hundred kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, subarctic um, environment ecosystem um, in Swedish Lapland or um, Sápmi, depending on political orientations. And so it was built at the turn of the 20th century. It was built as a, a model city with a very paternalist company town father figure, Hammer Lundbom, who was the managing director of the mine. Yeah, it was a model city. So, you know, you, like he built houses and uh, hospitals and churches and fire stations and all these things. They, in the 1970s, they kind of knew that the ore body extended diagonally under the town, right? The mine is on the western margin of the town um, and the, the ore body extends uh, west to east, diagonally down. Um, and it's, uh, it's Kieran ore is its own particular type. It's magnetite rich. So it's, um, it's very, it's increasingly sought after for different uh, types of construction work uh, and things like that. The decision was made and sort of formalized in 2004 to resettle the city center, which is also problematic because Kieran never was designed with a city center, but it was all to do with socialist planning. But we call it the center. Um, and so that was going to be resettled three kilometers east. Um, and because of the Swedish mineral policy, which was made law in the early 90s, possibly off the back of what the mining company LKAB had done to the town of Malmbury when they expanded the open Admiral pit mine, and a lot of people lost their homes and were not compensated. So then the, the LKAB are obliged to pay for what's happening. For the, any damages done because of mining, LKAB are obliged to pay. So what they're thing was was like well we'll just rebuild the city center and we'll move we'll repopulate it and that'll be what happens so the construction sort of began and they are moving all the infrastructure and everything over but what sort of happened now as well is that like so as well as buying the houses the the lkb will put 25 percent on top of the price of your house which is creating a bit of a housing bubble uh in the north of sweden but um also they have this idea that like well we want people from the current kiruna to move into the new kiruna and we want that to happen, but there's also signs that that isn't true and or isn't working. Um, and there's active prospecting for 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 labour to move in um, to Kiruna from Euro- Europe more broadly, not particularly from Sweden. Uh, yeah, so it's being resettled. So as it stands, the current centre is being evacuated. Some buildings are being evacuated uh, up to ten months ahead of schedule because of massive cracks in the foundations. And these people are sort of just shunted around to different areas of the town. One of my informants had said to me, uh, you know, he'd said like, oh, like um, LKAB isn't a mining company anymore. They're a real estate company. That's what they do. Um, 
so yeah, they're very much in the market now where they're they're buying they're buying up everything that they promised they would buy up, which is great. Um, they're not delivering on some of their promises for what they would build because things get tied up in the in the Swedish bureaucratic system. And the new centre is meant to be complete in the next like ten years. And you shared with us a chapter uh, about your fieldwork that you did last year. Um, where did this idea of doing fieldwork in Karina come from? Uh, because you mentioned that you had this idea of like researching Karina and researching from an anthropological perspective. Mm. Um, but why was it important to you to be there as an anthropologist? Yeah, good question. <laughs> do, you, do you do this for a living? No. Um, so I was listening to the Mia Bena episode uh, when it came out and she was talking about um, coastal dynamics, this idea of coastal morphology, geomorphology, and how that kind of influenced uh, her um, thinking about infrastructures and things, because it's very much the same story for me during um, a bachelor's degree. um, We did coastal geomorphology and where that sort of politics meets the natural world, uh, natural world in quotation marks. And it was, that's what triggered anthropology for me, because it's that, it was that question of what do we define as human and why do we define things as human and why are they excluded necessarily? from a lot of the measurements and descriptions of the so-called natural world. And there was one very prominent uh, argument one of my lecturers made where he was saying, they were talking about um, the rock formation, the old man of Hoy off the north coast of Scotland. They were talking about um, furnishing that with sort of buttresses to keep it standing because it's like a heritage landmark and things. But he was saying, I think we should let it fall into the sea because that is the natural order of things. But then the question is, why isn't buttressing the old man of Hoy also in the natural order of things? Like, at what point is it human exceptionalism? You know, uh, like, what, why isn't, you know, other other species will reinforce territories, other species will, you know, uh, will build societies, you know, uh, and they'll reinforce them and they'll defend them. You know, I mean, the most common one that will come to mind is ant colonies or beehives. So that very much triggered this whole thing. And I remember... Uh, I got two entirely different responses. I remember uh, speaking to uh, someone in the geography department and on the university, and they'd said, well, human ecology is what you're talking about. And, you know, so a human ecology, anthropology, that's what you're talking about there. Maybe you should pursue that if you want to take this further. And then I went and spoke to someone in biosciences, quite a high up professor, one of these professor emeritus, and they were just like, why would you ever want to study anthropology? <laughs> and they were just like, that's, there's nothing in that. Are you nuts? Like, why would you ever want to study that? No. Uh, right, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to study that, you understand, because I have a, a deeply uh, antagonistic personality. So whatever you tell me not to do, I'll just go and do that. Uh, and so I did that. And But the idea of, like, again, it's that thing of, like, you know, what you talk about, what do we talk about when we talk about anthropology? What do we mean when we say anthropology? What is an anthropological discussion? What is an anthropological measurement? What is an anthropological interrogation of a thing? And that's why it's like, well, it's it's hard to pin down really what that is and especially i think when you come into infrastructures because when we're talking about anthropology and we're talking about infrastructures we're kind of what we're talking about is a is a form of critical heritage study right this idea of uh the very critical approach to archaeology um this this you know the turn towards the the turn away from social constructivism towards affect you know and affective materials yeah i would like to follow up on that actually and get a little bit deeper into ways of doing uh, field work because when I was reading the chapter, I was really emotionally touched <laughs> because of the way you're writing, because of your, the way you're narrating the story and giving the credit to all 
small details and observations that are sometimes very personal. They have like a very um, personal touch <laughs> to that and a personal look at that. And um, I find it especially interesting that, you know, when we talk about uh, the lived spaces, that the lived experiences of those spaces, and then when you go into them and you're in this space of ruination, decay, of development at the same time, that has these different temporalities that sometimes you can step into one uh, area or zone, right, as you call it, after you know, the associations with the uh, Strugatsky brothers' uh, work <laughs> that I really appreciated. And then you get, then you step out of the zone and all of a sudden you're in a different time zone as well. So it's like this space and time disruption and a convergence. So how did it feel to be there and do this field work? And what was the main um, thing that you wanted to capture through this fieldwork and to show the readers? I mean, one thing in terms of what it felt like to be there and to do this fieldwork, I mean, I, I mean, as with everything over the past couple of years, this I did fieldwork between August 2020 and, and August 2021. So everything is framed by the broader sort of invasive governance of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so, I mean, I mean, growing up and doing fieldwork was difficult because it was very hard to build intimate relationships with my informants and, and from an ethical standpoint as well it was difficult to to do that you know you you you're not getting invited into people's homes and that's completely fine and also you know um while I was in Kiruna it became the place with the highest transmission rate in Europe in spring 2021 and it was everywhere and it's an aging population and there was a, a minefield it was uh <clears throat> it was weird it was a really weird time and it was kind of a deeply you can maybe see it in, the, in what I sent, but it was a deeply paranoid time. And then being in Kirana, which was this raw nerve of, a, of, of a, you know, of a, it's a state-owned mine that's undermining the town. And people there, you know, my informants are saying like, oh, like, what do I do? Because the state owns the mine. So it's the state effective, effectively telling me that my house is standing in the way of progress. But I am a Swedish citizen. You know, I am a Swedish national you know and, and that's the other thing like the politics of, of 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 identifying yourself up there as well which is you know deeply complex and deeply political informants you know saying you know like oh you know i'm tornadalin or i'm um, sammy or I'm, I'm from there and, and people even using you know we were talking earlier about um editing out swear words and then you know but this is one of these contextual things where it's like where people were would would openly say like well i am a lap and lap is a deeply, deeply degrading term for a lot of people in the North. And, but people were openly just saying that, you know, but that's, that's this politics of identity. But it's, it's what's bound up in this is this, uh, these narratives of being a second-class citizen. Um, the things around you are a simulacra of, of life. You, you don't know if life is there or not because of the way that the buildings have been set up to have this theatricality about them, you know, and then you turn a corner and they're in ruins. Like, they're, in, they're completely destroyed. Um, and there's big piles of snow and ice at their doors and things like that. There's that trope in anthropology, right, of um, you make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. That's what fieldwork does. You go into the field and your life becomes odd because you're interacting with this other culture, but whatever. But what I realized when I was there was, well, what if actually what I've done is I've gone to a place which I kind of conceive is actually just the brazen raw nerve of, I guess, what we're in the Anthropocene, right? 
a big company undercutting the lives of everyone, just being really brazen about it and telling everyone not to mourn that past because the future will be brighter than ever. But simultaneously, like that future is not built for the people who currently live in that town. Right. The, 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 someone, one of my informants had said to me, like, <clears throat> there can be no post-industrial Kirana while the current Kirana stands. The current Kirana is a material barrier to this idea of developmental progress on which, you know, growth is founded. And, I, and like, you know, it kind of hopefully this comes back. We were talking about temporality and that's all attuned to the velocity of the market. Right. So, like, it's that thing of like, you can't stop mining because the market needs to transact money at a certain speed. And if you don't match that speed, your business is harmed. So, again, one of my informants is saying that, like, well, there's no shops in the centre of town anymore, and my ageing grandmother lives in the centre of town. I have to drive four hours to Kirana, four hours back, once, maybe twice a week, to go food shopping for my, for my grandmother, because she cannot walk to the shops, nor can she drive. And it's minus 25 outside. You will die. <laughs> so it's a mining community. Death is prevalent and has been for the last hundred odd years. But this informant had said to me, like, you know, if they, if they stop mining at like half the rate, if they stop digging up half the amount of ore, we'd have twice the amount of time. And it's like, yeah, but why would that ever happen? Like, why would that ever happen? Thank you. I actually would like to pick up on the conversations that you had with, the, um, with your informants As you mentioned, the company pretty much owns a lot of houses and a lot of apartments. And they don't only do mining these days, so it's much more complex and politicized. And uh, I noticed that there was an interesting interplay between the absence and the presence. This awareness of people that in those houses that have lights on, there is actually no one living. And at the same time, this huge efforts of um, of the company to create the presence that there is life there, <laughs> so that it feels cozy, <laughs> which gives a totally you know creepy feeling. It gives some it gives chills, especially when you bring up the science fiction analogies <laughs> in your text. Um, well, <laughs> if I could coin a term, um, time is out of joint. Uh, I, I didn't coin that. That was uh, William Shakespeare. No, so it's like, so it's this idea, right, that the buildings being bought, the old apartment blocks and things that were built in the 1950s and 60s and stuff, they've been evacuated, but they're made as if there's people still living in them. And that's a very, that's uh, purposeful by LKAB. They install lamps in the windows and they're on automated timers and things. So there's still electricity running in the building and things. You know, my informants have seen like, but it's, you know, it, there's no one in there. But like that apartment, I used to live in that with my family and I'd, uh, and you you see the lamps and you have these memories and you ha and you think oh you know someone else is living in there maybe doing those things now and then you think but then you know no one's living in there oh, it's complete it's empty and it, this this sort of idea you had of, of the present which is also wrong and the future also telescopes in as well because you're like well that building's just going to be demolished there's no there's no one in there for a reason so it, this thing like you're saying this like sort of uh, the like absence is made present which is very much how Uh, the Derrida's ontology has been adapted, right? There's a guy called Colin Sterling who's currently arguing that ontology should be a core approach to, to critical heritage studies. Uh, you know, and I, but I was asked this question, like, so it's, it's this idea of maybe of the uncanny, you know, this sort of, 
um, Dylan Trigg writes about the phenomenology of the uncanny and the experience of the uncanny and landscapes and things like that. And, you know, there's sort of this question of, well, what is the value, right? What is the value of talking about the uncanny? Why even bother mentioning it? What is it, is it an analytical tool? Is it, you know, that's the thing where it's like, well, you know, it's, it seems really, maybe this is what anthropology is for, and maybe this is the limits to it also, but it's also just to say that this is there and this is happening, right? These things are happening to people. You know, the, this linear idea of time, which the mind is continually perpetuating, saying there definitely is a past, there definitely is a future, um, that doesn't work in the daily lives of these people. It doesn't necessarily make sense, and it doesn't necessarily need to make sense either. But it's also, you know, you sort of rear back in horror at the idea of sort of doing the very normative thing of comparing a non-linear time with a linear time, right? So for me, it comes back to power dynamics, and it comes back to who benefits if you create such an environment of such base confusion as time doesn't make sense anymore and that's what ties back into the language as well like um you know how can you articulate your environment um if you think there's people there and there isn't you know and it comes back to you know sarah pink's um sensory ethnography when when sarah pink's talking about you know you walking the environment uh with your informants or you know you know their experiences of the environment and it's this thing of uh my informant saying, well, you have to listen, and especially at night, because there's nothing here. There's nothing here. You just listen, and there's nothing here, but there's lights in all the windows. You know, you, you think you'd he hear something. You think there'd be people on the streets. You think there'd be whatever happening. This is where it ties into um, the idea of palliative curation, right? And your sense of self being distributed among the objects that you're around, and these affective materialities and things like that. You know, like this idea of you build your life into the environment and the environment builds its life into you, which is also one of the reasons for, for going to a mining town, right? Because, you know, it's where materials are physically, technologically produced, but it's where they're also socially produced. It's where rock becomes whatever mineral you want it to be, right? Thank you. I found it really interesting that you mentioned palliative curation and it really, you know, triggers this dilemma of a person, you you know, taking care of a decaying still living body and in this case built environment but at, but at the same time really understanding that you would have to perhaps abandon it at some point or whether you want to abandon it now or later and what do you do with that do you preserve it do you bury it do you carry it to another place and it's like the, the this um, at the intersection of the living and the dead at some point. And I think we've been talking a little bit about this with uh, Roman, right? About all those sci-fi <laughs> analogies. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, but I think that's one of the things that, like, there's no way of getting around the very base thing that decay happens all the time. Decay is the natural state of things. You know, entropy, decay is how things operate, right? So why is it any particular thing to say, hey, this is decaying, right? Why does that work? So what is the meaning behind decay? And I think for me, it's this idea of mourning and the ability of mourning your body, mourning the loss of the environment, being able to mourn the things in your life, which which you're losing. And that's like a major thing. And it's interesting for me in terms of uh, capital, there being no room to mourn in capital because mourning doesn't facilitate anything uh, that can be monetized particularly. And that's where it comes in, right? Because what, what LKAB are doing is zombie care. Right, it's just a dead. They're keeping a dead thing alive. Palli that's not palliative care. <laughs> palliative care is slowing down the process enough to maybe come to terms with the fact that death is occurring. Right, but coming to terms with the fact that death is occurring is a completely collective thing. 
Like, we, you don't just say to someone, you have to come to terms with this now, you understand? Like, it's a thing where you administer care and you administer these things. And, and that's the point I'm making is decay in, in itself is nothing special. That's not a problem. We're all decaying. Like, I mean, as I just had surgery on my legs because of my body, which is decaying. <laughs> but it's that idea of, well, okay, but what is the function of decay? What does decay remind us? What does it tell us to do? What is necessary to do? And again, it's power dynamics. You know, this is where Judith Butler's derail ethics of derealization comes in. You know, the mournable body, whose bodies, whose lives, whose existences are deemed to be mournable. And in Kirana, you know, it's like one of the arguments I heard a lot was that, like, no, this is a purely positive thing because we're building you a new city. So, like, what do you have to mourn? You have nothing to mourn. I think I think it's so interesting because um, when you were talking about it, I was like, oh, this reminds me so much of uh, Achille Mbembe, necropolitics concepts yeah. and um, this idea. But I know too, too little about to to truly engage with you uh, uh, on this. So I'm just going to shift gear here. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's interesting because before recording, Ruby and I were talking about, um, about your chapter, obviously. And... We found that the way you talked uh, about Karuna as a place is really similar to how um, we talk of post-Soviet spaces are often talked about and imagined. Mm. So this decay, ruins, la- lack of agency by, by people. Do, do you think there's something um, unique about Karuna being in a sub-Arctic or Arctic environment? If Karuna was... Uh, was elsewhere in the non-Arctic environment, do you think it would be the same? Or do you think that the Arctic-ness or Arctic quality of Kiruna also plays a role uh, in how the city is evolving and, and all of what's happening at the moment? Yeah, I mean, primarily for me, the interesting thing as well was the idea of resettling a community in a Western industrial, post-industrial state, you know, because communities are resettled all the time right that's not a big deal but it's always communities on the margins right you have um, the idea of sacrifice zones um, for industrial expansion and that's always identified they always happen in the communities who are not cared for they're always on the margins so that particular was an interest but I, I think at the core of this question is does the arctic work as an analytical lens how do you use the arctic as an analytical frame to talk about anything or are we taking everything that we collectively know about everything else and then deploying it into the arctic right which which raises questions about research as a frontier in itself you know and 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 this idea of of the arctic as much as it's a as as a frontier for capital now with extraction it's also now a brand new frontier or a, a brand new it's now an increasingly valuable in quotation marks frontier for the extraction of knowledge right and and research as a form of of uh, colonizing this space and, and 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 dictating what can be spoke about and what how we speak about the Arctic within, you know, within uh, institutional Western uh, education. For me, it's that thing of what Kiruna is indicative of, regardless if it's in the Arctic or not. I mean, it being in the Arctic is it's 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 a settler colonial town, right? That's what it is. But it's that thing of the settler colony are being resettled, right? So what are we talking about? What have we been talking about? Like this idea that white Swedish nationalism and settling the border in the turn of the twentieth century was the was like a was like a driver. There's a driving ideology. It's like no, that's it was economy. It was always economy because what you never thought they'd resettle you if you were sitting on top of their resource and you're a, in quotation marks a white Swede. No, of course they'd resettle you. It's always about economy. It's always about capital. You know, it's always about it's always about the frontier and the growth, right? 
So, Kiruna being in the Arctic, uh, but that's the thing, like, again, so we say the Arctic, it's not about Kiruna being in the Arctic, it's about Kiruna being on indigenous territory. That's what that's about. It's not about it being in the Arctic at all. It can be anywhere. It's just on indigenous territory, and then people moved in, and now they have to move out. But where they murdered the indigenous people before, they just build these people a new town. That's what it's about. Thank you so much for bringing this up, actually, and bringing this into our conversation, and especially the issue of uh, adequacy of Arctic as an analytical lens in research, and also the issue of settler colonialism that is still pretty much controversial. And there are a lot of um, unsettling discussions going on within Swedish academia uh, at the moment. My question to you is actually, what would you say is needed in this conversation, especially when we talk about master students and early career researchers and PhDs? What is needed so that it can be somehow changed, so that it can be somehow narrated differently? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I think for me, I, I get to the stage, and this is probably more indicative of where I am in the just in the process of, of writing and, and doing actually doing the work. Okay, just like a speculative idea. If we were just to stop, if we were to stop bothering these people, if we were to stop researching, if we were to stop doing anything, fundamentally, what would change? Fundamentally. Well, maybe these people would have some agency back. You know, I don't think they'd turn around and start studying us. You know, research is a frontier, right? And research is a genre and it's a representation of life. So if we stop representing other people's lives, and insisting that they represent, or as things turn out, right, we just insist that the people we're talking to represent their own lives, but pull it through our lens and pull it through our canon. Again, this is the problem of citational practice. You know, it's this, this is the, this is the core issue. And this is where you have your, your debates for decolonizing the curriculum, you know, as well, where it's like, how do you revert a system which is so deeply entrenched and ingrained in thought, which says, oh, but we have to be pragmatic. Let's say you get a big load of funding and the main header for your thing is traditional ecological knowledge. Um, and you're like, we're going to use, you know, we're going to go in and we're going to say, we don't know anything. We're going to learn from the indigenous communities here. And we're going to take that and we're, they're going to be co-authors. Everything's going to be fine, right? You get a big load of funding. What happens then if at the end, one of your indigenous informants says, you know, we, we've convened and, uh, and you can't publish this. We're not happy with it. We're not going to publish it. Again, it reverts back to the funding. Do you think your funders are not going to let you publish it? No. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen at all. And then your like, career's in the dirt. So it has to have trade-offs. And we need to ask the question, who has already traded off so much? Because <laughs> it's not us. Like, we haven't made the massive losses in everything, right? Because we're getting paid. <laughs> we're still getting paid to go and do this stuff. So <laughs> I think everyone should stop. I think everyone should stop. And then you go to these communities and say, like, do you have anything to say? And they're like, yeah, give us the land back. And we're like, oh, no. <laughs> we're like, no. We're, you know, like, I don't know. But I think that's a question that needs to seriously be had. Because it's not like we don't know what the problem is. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like there's sort of a broad-based agreement where we're like, oh, we kind of know what's going wrong. Again, there are core power dynamics. And they're, they're not in the people we proclaim to be helping's favor. You know, sometimes I think that what we need to focus more than we do usually is this really practicing this empathy and radical empathy in many ways, 
really in the everyday life, not only personal lives, of course, but really finding some other tools to to actually open up for other ways of narrating the stories that are perhaps uh, much more undisciplined, you know? Yeah, completely. You know, there's um there's a good book by Paul Kingsnorth called Savage Gods, where he makes the argument for stopping. And he um and he cites uh, a Amerindian indigenous guy who he refuses to speak in English because he's he says, why would I participate in this language? Why would I capitulate to that? This idea of asking others to participate in our legal systems to justify their own existence. You know, it's Audrey Lord's right, his master's tools and they were dismantle his the master's house. Thanks a lot, Eric. That's a good point to wrap it up. If people want to engage with you, uh, engage with your research, fight you, uh, <laughs> to have a have, have a nice chat, yeah, um, yeah. where where can they reach you? Well, I'm part of Durham Arctic, um, so it's uh, eric.boyd.durham.ac.uk if you want to send me an email. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Moogie. Uh, I would right. like to thank you so much. It's a lot of food for thought. And it was a really, really enjoyable conversation today. No, thank you. Anytime. <laughs>